Good morning. I'm glad to be here today, and I'm glad you're here today. You know, um, our U.S. government has a division called NASA, and NASA sends people to outer space. They hadn't done much of that in a long time, although we keep people on the International Space Station. But one of the things NASA's done that's gotten a lot of publicity in the last few years is they've sent rovers to Mars, right? And they send these little things that they can remote control drive all the way up in Mars, and these things run around Mars, and they do get samples and take pictures and all of that. Well, they didn't send just one, but they sent one and another and another, and and they're continuing to send these rovers to Mars with the idea of maybe trying to find life or, you know, seeing if we can figure out a way to make Mars a livable place for humans when uh, we go ahead and destroy Earth. So... Um, they're working on all that. One of the things that I found a couple of years ago that you can do is you can go online to NASA's website, and this is over now for this trip, but they're sending another rover up in, uh, supposed to be March or April of this year, I think, and you can go and put your name on a microchip that or submit your name to be put on a microchip that will be taken on that rover up to Mars. And so last year when I was teaching, first time I taught science, I took and I went on that website and I put a every one of my kids, I put their names on this rover that's supposed to go in. They print out this little certificate and it's boarding passes, you know, to go to Mars and all that cute kind of stuff. Why do you think people would be interested in doing that? I mean, I, th- I thought it was pretty cool, you know, put my kids' names and stuff. My name's up there. So one of these days, if someone ever finds that and has any way to read it, out of the thousands of names that are there, my name will be up there. My kids' names will be up there. My students' names will be up there. We all, I think, want to be remembered, don't we? We all want someone to remember us. What if I were to tell you that in 2,000 years, people would remember you? Or not remember you, but remember about you. They'd know your name. Do you think that's really going to happen to any of us that are here? Really? 2,000 years from now, anybody know who we were? Probably not. Other than God. Obviously, God's going to know us. But... Probably none of us are going to accomplish the kinds of things that keep your name around for years. But, you know, it's not always a good thing for people to know who you were, right? It's not always a good thing for people to be able to remember, well, this person lived and they did that. Take Hitler as an example. Hitler will be remembered for a long, long time in history for the evil things that he did. This guy right here will also be remembered throughout all of the history of the earth. And he won't be remembered for anything good, anything beneficial, but he will be remembered for the evil that he did. His name was Judas. Judas Iscariot. Judas was a guy who was one of the disciples of Christ, and he is renowned. As a wicked man, as a man who failed the Lord, as a man who turned away from God, a man who had it all and let it all slip away. I want to talk a little bit about 
his history. Tell you just a little bit about Judas because there's really a, a very limited amount of knowledge that we have about this guy. One, we know that he was the son of Simon. At two different times in the Bible, it says, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, I hope Jacob accomplishes great things. I hope that he has he's remembered for good things. But if he's remembered for bad things, I hope they don't advertise him or remember him as Jacob, the son of Michael McCorkle, if he's done bad stuff. I hope that people wouldn't remember Michael, the son of Jerry McCorkle, if I do bad stuff that causes me to be remembered. His dad, I don't know if he had any brothers or sisters. All we know about this guy and his family is that he was the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, back then, they didn't normally have last names like we have last names today. So Simon Iscariot, Iscariot wasn't his last name. Judas Iscariot wasn't his last name. What that name means probably is that he was from an area called Kiroith or Kiroith. And that was a, here's a map showing you where it was. Jerusalem is right there. So Kiroith was way down here in the south part of Judea. Now there's a, a little doubt and a little question as to whether that's really what Iscariot means or not. Some people think it means some other things. But that's probably what it means is that he was from this area. We know that Judas was one of the original 12 disciples. I say disciples, the original 12 apostles. He was one of the 12. And as one of the 12, he had power over demons. You ever thought about that? Judas had power over demons. He had power to cast out evil spirits and to heal people. Did you know that? Jesus sent the disciples out and gave them power to do those things. And Judas was listed as one of those apostles who received that power. That's pretty cool. Wouldn't you like to have that power? Judas also kept the money for Jesus. He's the one who took care of the finances of the group. People donated. They gave money to Jesus as a teacher. And that's allowed Jesus and his disciples to do the things that they did in traveling. Although Jesus obviously could have taken care of that some other way. Judas kept the money. He was trusted by the apostles to take care of the money. Now, I don't know how he originally got that job. I don't know if Jesus said, okay, we got to have somebody take care of the money. And Judas said, I'll do that. I, I don't know. I don't know if Jesus knew his heart and said, Judas, why don't you take care of the money? We don't know that story, but we do know that he took care of the money. We also know that he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. That's a fascinating thought to me. He didn't betray Jesus with an email. You know, obviously they didn't do email back then. But I mean, he didn't do it from a distance. He didn't do it with some secret sneaking around where no one would ever know it was him. He betrayed him and he betrayed him with with a, a show of affection, a show of devotion, a show of commitment to Jesus Christ. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Another thing we know about Judas is that he committed suicide. Killed himself, hung himself. Now, in the Bible, there's two different stories about this. One talks about him hanging himself. The other talks about him falling and busting open and his his guts busting out. 
And uh, sometimes people say, well, see, there's a contradiction, but there's not really a contradiction. They're easily understood by the idea that he hung himself and died. And when his, his body fell or the rope broke or whatever happened, he fell and burst open. That's easily understood. One way or another, he killed himself. Can you imagine being one of the disciples of Jesus, being someone who walked with Jesus, someone who had power over demons, and yet coming to such a terrible end that you would kill yourself? That's what Judas did. You know, all of his life, we have no indication that any of the disciples mistrusted him. We have no indication that he was any less faithful than any of the other disciples, except for one or two particular little stories. There's one time that Jesus is with the disciples, and Jesus says this. Jesus answered them and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, Jesus knew this, obviously, from the very beginning, but everyone else didn't. And I can imagine when Jesus says, aren't one of you a devil? Do you think they gave each other kind of some sideways looks? <laughs> Said, hmm. <laughs> which, one, which one of you guys? In fact... Jesus actually calls Peter Beelzebub at one point. He said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Beelzebub. So maybe they thought he was talking about Peter. I don't, I don't know there. But Jesus knew, and Jesus talked about that some. Really, if you were going to sum up this guy's life, I think his own words are the best summary of the life of Judas. His words are this. I have sinned. In that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Those are the words of Judas right before he killed himself. And what I want to do now is we get into our study of Judas. And how that affects or, or directs us. And why there's so much about him in the New Testament. Because there's far more about him than there is say Matthias for instance right. One of the twelve. There's something God wants you and I to learn from this story. After Jesus has been crucified. After Judas has committed suicide, the disciples are together. Jesus has spent 40 days with them, teaching them. He has ascended up into heaven and he said, you go in Jerusalem and wait for me. And the guys are in Jerusalem. There's only 11 of them now. And they believe that they need 12. In fact, there's a prophecy that someone would take the place of the 12th. And so they decide to replace that. And Peter stands up and he says these things. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akel Damah, that is field of blood. Peter stands up and says this and then he follows this by saying, so we need to choose another man to take his place. 
we need to choose another man to fill his bishopric or his his office, his responsibility in sharing this. Let's look at this guy. I think there are some very important things we can learn from him. The first thing that I want to talk with you about with about Judas is this. You need to know that Satan loves a wicked heart. He does. And Judas is a perfect example of that. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Now, this is consider the the story. Jesus is here with his disciples at the Last Supper, and he's told them he's going to die. And they don't believe him and they don't understand it and they're confused. And Jesus is having the Passover feast with them. And as they're sitting at the table, they say, or Jesus says, one of you here at this table is going to betray me. You're going to turn against me. Now, what's fascinating to me about this is they didn't all go, Judas. (laughs) They didn't do that. Why not? I mean, the way we think about Judas, the way we talk about Judas, we would expect he would be the obvious culprit, the obvious one that everyone would point at and go, that's got to be the guy. I mean, if any of us is going to betray him, it's going to be Judas. They didn't know that. It didn't immediately say. In fact, you know what we find out is that in another account that all the disciples were asking Jesus, is it me, Lord? Is it me? You know, they'd seen some strange stuff with Jesus and a lot of stuff that they didn't understand. Lots of things that Jesus would do and say that made no sense to them at all. And here he says, one of you is going to betray me. I don't know if they even had an idea of exactly what that meant to betray Jesus. If that meant to them that he was going to completely leave. Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Now, this is another story that had happened a little before. And they had, this woman had taken some very costly ointment and broken it open and put it on the feet of Jesus. And she was anointing him for his burial. This was all around the same period of time. It was very, very expensive. Now, I don't, you know, we don't buy really expensive perfume or cologne or anything like that at our house. But I know they sell some stuff that's like really, really expensive for a small amount. That's what this was. Something really, really high dollar. And... The really high dollar stuff that she poured on the feet. Judas says, you're wasting that. We could have sold that and given the money to the poor. Now, that sounds noble, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that sound more more holy and spiritual? Lord, why would you let her pour this junk on your feet when we could have given all this money to poor people? Right? That sounds really righteous and holy. But the truth is, This guy, Judas, had a wicked heart. And his heart, his problem, was not that he was a Jesus denier. It wasn't that he was a a Messiah betrayer. His problem was plainly and clearly that he was a thief. 
Judas was greedy. That's what was wrong with his heart. It wasn't that different from a whole lot of our hearts sometimes. And you know, when you allow something wicked like that in your heart, you allow yourself to be given over to one of the three primary sins of mankind, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. You allow that to take you over? What is going to happen is the devil, Satan, will use that against you and he will enter your heart and he will provide opportunities and temptation to you. And he'll use that to destroy you. He'll use that to turn you into a destroyer or a betrayer of Jesus. It says, then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. You see, he said there that Satan, look at that, Satan entered Judas. You know where he got the idea to betray Jesus? Now, I don't know the exact circumstances, but some way or another, he came up with the idea. I can get some money out of these Pharisees. I can get some money out of the Sadducees. I can sell the position of Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this. They couldn't arrest Jesus. He was so popular. They couldn't really arrest him in public. And they didn't always know where he went when he went off in private. And so it would be to their advantage to be able to arrest Jesus. But put yourself in the place of Judas. We know Judas didn't think they could take Jesus. We know that because the Bible says when he saw that Jesus was condemned, he took the money back and tried to make it right. He didn't think they would get Jesus. And it's only reasonable because he'd seen them try to arrest Jesus over and over and in story after story, they'd send people to arrest Jesus and they'd come and Jesus would talk to them and all these guys came arrest him and go, oh, there's nobody like this. And they'd turn around and leave. Or they'd go to arrest Jesus and he'd just walk out through the midst of them. I am pretty confident that he didn't think they could take Jesus. That he just thought he was ripping off the Pharisees. He was taking advantage of these people who hated the, the master. People who hated the Messiah. Now does that speak to you at all? What's your attitude toward people who hate the master and the Messiah? Well, you know, they're just pagans or they're just this or that. What's your attitude about them? You know, his attitude about them caused him to not, not treat them right. To try to take advantage of them. And by doing that, he ended up getting caught in a sin that's made him infamous for centuries and cost his own life. You know, the enemies of Jesus are to be loved by the children of Jesus, not hated, not abused, not taken advantage of. The Bible tells us to guard our hearts with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. You see, it's so important for you not to let just something little that's corrupt and wrong just go in your life. If it's bitterness, if it's lust, if it's greed, no matter what it is, you can't just allow that to be in your life and think, well, this doesn't hurt anyone but me, or it doesn't bother. It does. It does. Satan enters wicked hearts. And Satan will enter your heart if it's wicked and if you allow that. And you can turn your mind from it. And you can turn your thoughts from it. And you can think, no, that wouldn't happen to me. 
but it will and it does. Because we have an enemy in Satan that has no mercy. He has no mercy on anyone. And he turned one of the very disciples of Jesus into a mistake that ultimately cost him his life. Another thing you need to learn from this, I believe we need to learn, is the wrong people will make your problem worse. You know, when Judas was tempted, when Judas had a temptation to do something that was not right, you know who he went to? Were the people who could help him do what wasn't right. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. They were excited. You know, there are people that will help you do wicked. There are people who will help you do evil. There are people who will help you be immoral or be greedy and take advantage of people. There are people who, if you're angry and bitter, will help you be bitter and they will justify that for you and they will understand. It doesn't matter what problem that you have. There are people who will help you be sinful. And when you go to people like that, it's just going to make the problem worse. It will never make the problem better. He went to the wrong people. Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Jesus explained in the book of James through his brother James who wrote that book that evil temptation happens when we have evil desires that are coupled with enticement you know what enticement is enticement is an opportunity to do something you're enticed to do something if you don't have a desire for it an enticement isn't an enticement there's no temptation if you don't have a desire for it The temptation is when you have a desire for it and Satan provides a way for that to be put in front of you. Many, many times he does that through wicked friends, through immoral friends, through friends who understand, through friends who are glad and will help you when you do the things that are against the will of God. One thing that you need to know Especially the young folks here. We've got some young men here that need to know this. The friends who help you get in trouble will not help you get out of trouble. They won't do it. Then Judas seeing his betrayer, or Judas his betrayer seeing that he had been condemned was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. See, the people who help you into trouble will not help you out of trouble. Never happens, does it, Kent? How many times people think their friends are there for them, and they're not when the trouble comes. They're only there. Think about the prodigal son. He had lots of friends when he had money and was getting in trouble. But he didn't have any of them to help him out of that trouble. You need to be careful about the choices that you make. You know, these priests should at the very least. They were priests. At the very least, they should have offered sacrifices for this man who had committed this sin, right? And he comes broken and failed. And even knowing they're the ones who got him into this or agreed to help him with this. And they say, buddy, that's your problem. 
Not our problem. Don't bother me. That's not my trouble. That's yours. You need to know that those are not real friends that will help you into trouble and they won't help you out. The Bible says, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Evil friends, it doesn't matter who you are. If your friends are evil, they will corrupt you. Choose your friends carefully. Another thing to learn is that sin has consequences you can't undo. That's just true. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing he had been condemned, was remorseful. He was remorseful. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. And there wasn't anything he could do about it. It was done. It was over. Nothing could be changed. And the I didn't mean to doesn't change the consequences of sin. It never changes that. You know, if someone gets out here and gets drunk and drives and runs over and kills someone else. All the I didn't mean to's in the world don't change that, do they? The person's still dead. You can't undo what's happened. You need to know before you commit the sin, before you make those choices, that sin has consequences that cannot be undone. I don't believe, as I told you before, that he thought the attempt on Christ's life would be successful, but it was. And there was nothing that he could do. He was filled with regret, unable to erase the consequences of the sin that he'd committed. Now, some people say, well, I thought God would forgive you. Yes, God will forgive you. And you can be forgiven for the guilt of the sin, but you can never ever change the consequences that result from that sin. And sometimes those consequences are lifelong consequences. Judas made a mess he couldn't fix. And so he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. He knew he couldn't undo this. He knew it couldn't be fixed. He knew there was nothing could be done to correct it. He'd heard the teaching of Jesus. He was no doubt standing right there when Nicodemus came in the dark of night and talked to Jesus about being born into the kingdom of God. He knew that. He heard Jesus rebuke them for their selfishness and for their pride. He knew. He'd heard Jesus talk. He was no doubt there when the man came and said, Jesus, my brother won't share the inheritance. And Jesus' answer was... This world does not consist or your life doesn't consist of the things that you possess. He heard those teachings. He heard Jesus tell them, don't worry about what you're going to have tomorrow. And all that time, his greedy heart was still greedy. And he knew and he couldn't undo it. One of the hardest and saddest things in life is to be in a situation where you know the damage that you've done for your sin and it can't be undone. And I warn you, especially those of you who are young, stop now. Change now before there are consequences that are lifelong that can't be changed. The most bitter sorrow many times will come from a knowledge of your own sin. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. That's what David said in Psalm. You know, King David, do you think he ever forgot the con- the fact that he had committed that sin with Bathsheba and had a child that died? 
Do you think Paul ever forgot that he'd had Stephen put to death? Do you think Peter ever forgot that rooster crowing that morning as he was cursing and swearing that he didn't know Jesus? I don't believe they ever forgot those things. The consequences of sin are lifelong, and you need to be aware of that. And finally, unresolved guilt will ruin your life. He threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, departed, and went and hanged himself. Unresolved guilt will destroy a person. Unresolved guilt will sap the joy out of everything you do in this life that you enjoy. It'll take the blessing out of everything. It'll even at times disturb your sleep where you can't rest. Had a situation one time where a woman was uh, having bad nightmares. She was dreaming that Jesus was on the cross and she was holding on to the base of the cross and the devil had hold of her legs and was pulling her away from the cross and she couldn't hold on and she was being pulled off. And she had gone to see psychiatrists and different people. You know what her problem was? We found out. She was having an affair, cheating on her husband. She knew good and well that she was betraying Christ. And it was getting into her dreams. Unresolved guilt will make you do things that you never thought you'd do. Other than just making you miserable. David describes his unresolved guilt before his confession He said, your hand was upon me and the weight of my guilt was crushing me. That's the way he described it. He was being crushed by guilt. Have you ever felt that? I want you to know I've felt that. Have you ever felt that? Unresolved guilt will destroy a person's life. His guilt killed Judas. The Bible says godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world... That sorrow produces death. And you can't get away from it. You can't hide it. You can't change your circumstances. I was talking to someone the other day who uh, was going to make a move because they were unhappy with their circumstances and their situation and their job and, you know, just generally unhappy with a lot of things. And this has been actually quite a while ago that we were talking. But one of the things I told them is I said, you know, the thing is, when you move, you're going to take you with you. You can't get away from you. That's why you see people who have the same problem in every job they ever have. Or they have the same problem with every spouse that they have. Or they have the same problem in every church that they attend. Because the problem isn't everyone else. You see, the problem is the guilt and the behavior within that person. And you can't get away from it. You can't drown it with alcohol or drugs. Because it's still there when you become sober again. You can't change it by getting a better job or making more money or changing the way you look or moving to a different community because it's something within you. Judas was destroyed by his guilt because he had sorrow, but it was sorrow of the world. It was sorrow of the world that produces death. It was not sorrow that's godly because godly sorrow changes people. Talked to someone just not terrible long ago about a situation. And one of the things we talked about was this. That it's different to be sorry and to repent. Those are different things. Lots of times people are sorry for what the consequences of their sin are. But they don't change. It's different 
to be sorry about the consequences and other people got hurt or whatever, and I feel terrible about that. That's one thing. But to be sorry to repentance is a different kind of sorry. That's a sorrow over the sin. That's hating the sin. That's saying, you know what? I'm not going to be like that anymore. And it's going to change. You see, Judas didn't have that kind of sorrow. The Bible says, he who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Sometimes people get confused. In our world, we talk a lot about confession. Not so much as much in the church, I think, as we should. But there's a lot in the world about, you know, going to uh, join some group, you know, where like AA or whatever it is for your, your problem. Celebrate recovery kind of thing where you go and you confess. And there's value in that. There's tr- the Bible teaches we should confess our sins to one another. But just confessing stuff you're going to continue doing isn't, isn't helping anything. It doesn't change anything. You see, you have to confess and forsake. Blessed is the man who confesses and forsakes them. Because that man is going to have mercy. You have to turn away from and turn against the sin that you committed. That wasn't Judas. Judas confessed his sin. Judas went and said, I've sinned in betraying the innocent blood. But his confession was just... That's what I did. It wasn't. And I'm going to change things now. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a description of Jesus. And as I was putting this lesson together, I was thinking about this. What do you think Jesus would have done if Judas had been standing at the base of the cross with the other disciples? What do you think the reaction or response of Jesus would have been? Do you think he'd have looked down and said, you dog, you devil, get out of here. You think that's what Jesus would have said? If he'd come with repentance, begging forgiveness. See, Jesus understood. Jesus was tempted in all points like we are. I believe Jesus would have forgiven Judas just like he forgave another disciple that denied Jesus within hours of this betrayal. A disciple named Peter. Who came back and stayed and followed You see, no matter what you've done, the resolution to that guilt is to go confess that and seek mercy and forsake it and change. Do something different. Change and walk with Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you can come to Him no matter what your problem is. You can come to Him and ask. You can boldly go before Him and find mercy and find grace to help when you have times of need. He will help you. He promised that. And He is a faithful high priest. So... The lessons we've learned from Judas this morning are, number one, Satan loves a wicked heart. And it doesn't have to be desperately wicked. It just has to be wicked. Don't let wickedness in your heart. Don't let greed or bitterness or lust or or, uh, any of the sins of the flesh, any of the sins of life. Don't just let any of that be there. Don't allow it to stay. Because if you do, Satan will take advantage of that. And he will join in your, or he will enter your heart and lead you to commit sin. Whoa.
It's a little narrow there. I almost fell off the stage. Secondly, the wrong people will make your problem worse. Just stay away from people who aren't good for you. I know the good people for you may not be as fun. I know you may not want to come to church all the time and be around godly people because you feel bad because of what your problems are. What, whatever the thing is, just make better choices. You can do that. I heard someone say one time, to have the right friends, you've got to be willing to have the right enemies. And that's just true. You've got to be willing to not have the wrong people as your friends because the wrong people will lead you into trouble and won't help you out. Thirdly, sin has consequences that you can't undo. I cannot emphasize that enough to you. While you're young, remember that, learn that, because there are things, I guarantee you, every one of us who's over 30 years old in here, isn't there stuff you'd change if you could? And you can't, can you? There are consequences you just can't undo. And finally, lastly, Unresolved guilt will ruin your life. So my final plea to you this morning, my final call to you, is to resolve the guilt that's in your life. Do you have unresolved guilt? It's time, if you have unresolved guilt, to soften your heart. It's time to submit your heart to the Lord. It's time to confess that and forsake that. It's time. These are critical lessons that I believe God wanted you and I to learn from this man Judas. A man whose bad choices and bad friends and bad decisions and bad heart led him to do something that was unspeakable that has had his name live on in infamy for thousands of years. Jesus called him the son of perdition. He was someone that you don't want to be. And I don't believe if he were sitting here, if Judas was a member of this congregation, I don't believe any of us right now at this point in this sermon would be looking around at him going, you know, I think he's preaching about that guy. I don't believe it. I don't believe we'd have any idea. I think he'd look just like all of us. But he'd have that sin hidden away in his heart. So I don't know about you. Do you have sin hidden away in your heart? Turn away from it today if you do. If we can help you with that, we offer a song of invitation if you'll make that need known while we stand and sing.